President Trump may still have legal and constitutional roads to a theoretical victory by throwing the election into the House of Representatives, but the numbers are not pointing in that direction. In order for him to turn a theoretical legal victory into a practical reversal of fortune and change in the outcome of the election, there have to be enough disputed ballots to overcome the margins of victory in at least three or four states. That does not look like it's happening. And so I predict that before long we will see this election resolved and the president hopefully moving on to help the Biden uh, transition team in transitioning, particularly on issues like the coronavirus and national security. You'll also hear on The Der Show new information about the Reverend Warnick. Now he's not only attacking Israel, he's attacking the American military and soldiers who served honorably in the American military and telling them that their service in the military was in violation of their commitment to God. All this on The Der Show. If you're listening or viewing The Der Show and enjoying it, please subscribe. Become a subscriber. Press the appropriate buttons that make you a subscriber so you'll get access to the show every single day. If you've been listening to The Der Show, you know my position on the election, the recounts, and the legal challenges. I've been as clear as anybody can be. Uh, you're not hearing wishful thinking from me. You're not hearing what I hope the results will be. You're hearing a careful, calculated, objective, neutral legal analysis, which is true. And that is that President Trump has some legal pathways, legal, constitutional pathways to potential victory, but that his chances of actually being able to capitalize on them are getting smaller and smaller as the recounts occur and as the margins of victory in contested states seem to exceed the number of actual challenged ballots. So the position I've been taking and been very clear about is that there are legal challenges still available. His lawyer should not be condemned for pursuing those legal challenges. It's part of the American system to challenge, to demand recounts. But if you ask me to bet widows and orphans money to make a conservative bet on the outcome of the election, it is that uh, Joe Biden will be sworn in on um, January 20th and that the electors on December 14th will elect him uh, president-elect of the United States of America. There's no inconsistency between me saying there are legal routes available, but that the numbers don't seem to turn those legal challenges into practical victories. Instead, that the Supreme Court might very well give Trump a Pyrrhic victory in Pennsylvania, might rule that they shouldn't have counted the ballots that were received after Election Day, that there was an equal protection violation when some counties allowed curing of imperfect ballots while other counties didn't. Those are interesting, plausible legal challenges that I believe would prevail in the Supreme Court, likely would prevail in the Supreme Court if the numbers supported them. But if, in fact, Biden's ahead by 80,000 votes, say, and the number of challenged ballots is 20 or 30 or 40,000 votes, then the Supreme Court's going to say, wait a minute, we're not in the business of giving theoretical 
uh, advisory opinions or Pyrrhic victories. We're in the business of deciding real cases and controversies. So they won't take the case unless the numbers justify it. Well, you wouldn't know that if you read some of the reports of what I've said. For example, yesterday uh, I was on uh, Fox News uh, morning show with uh, Maria Bartleroma, and she asked me a lot of those questions. And I was as clear as I could be, again, saying, yes, there are constitutional possibilities. Yes, there are legal challenges. Yes, the Constitution provides that if there aren't 270 electoral votes or a majority electoral votes, it goes to the House of Representatives. Yes, all of that is true. But if you have to bet on the outcome, you would not bet for President Trump at this point. I said that again, just as I've said it. The one thing I am is consistent. Yet the stories that appear all over the place, Dershowitz says Trump's going to win. Dershowitz says he has a road to victory. Dershowitz is a shell for the Trump administration. Uh, I think Professor Lawrence Tribe, my former colleague, uh, described me as a despicable shell for the uh, Trump uh, 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 team. Um, if you've listened to what I've said, if you've heard what I've said, if you've read what I've said, uh, obviously you'll confirm, you, my listeners and viewers, are the best witnesses, will confirm that I've called it straight. I've called it down the middle, and I've been consistent right from the beginning. So let me be very clear what my view is today. Today, I think we will see certification uh, by Pennsylvania of Biden. We will probably see certification by Michigan and, and Georgia, and we will soon see enough certifications to exceed the 270 for Biden, at which point he moves from the presumptive president-elect to the actual president-elect. It doesn't become official until the 14th of December when the electors actually vote. But as I've also said, I think that President Trump should uh, have his administration cooperate fully in the transition, even if he's still challenging the election, even if he's refusing to concede. He can still, in the interests of promoting the values of trying to stop the coronavirus, trying to maximize the rollout of the vaccine, pr protecting our national security, there is very good reason for having him and his administration cooperate in the transition, even while he continues to contest and challenge. So, you know, that's, that's my position. Um, the numbers just are not there for President uh, Trump. Now, it, it may be there's still this challenge to the computers, and those involve massive numbers. But um, just recently, <clears throat> that challenge suffered a, a serious blow when um, uh, Sidney Powell made statements uh, all over television that she could prove that not only was there massive uh, problems with the computers in Georgia and other places, but that it was as the result of corruption, that money was paid, that bribes were paid to public officials in Georgia. That apparently was too much uh, for the Trump defense team. And um, they made a statement, at least as reported in the press, that she no longer speaks for the Trump defense team and she is not authorized to file suits on their behalf. So the strongest factual case, the strongest case involving the most numbers of voters, the case involving perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of uh, votes done and counted on computer 
by this company that apparently has connections to Venezuela, you name it. Apparently, that uh, argument is uh, no longer being pushed, at least with the fervor that it was being pushed by uh, Sidney Powell, by the Trump uh, legal team itself. It's a work in progress. Wait and see. I haven't heard all the final resolutions there. She still says she's going to file the lawsuits by Friday. She can do that, uh, even though it's not on behalf of the Trump team. She could do it on behalf of voters in Georgia. She can do it on behalf of uh, the Republican Party if they allowed her to do it. But a lawyer has to have a client, and the client has to stand behind what the lawyer is saying and authorize the lawyer to make these arguments. And we're seeing some movement away from that by the Trump administration. My legal analysis won't change, but my factual analysis obviously follows the numbers and follows the facts. My bottom line analysis now is that the window uh, of opportunity is quickly closing for the Trump uh, legal team, that the numbers just aren't there, that the margins of victory, uh, more than 100,000 in Michigan, um, less than 100,000, but probably more than 50 or 60,000 in Pennsylvania, much, much smaller in Georgia, uh, just a little in excess of, of 10,000 and small also in, um, in Nevada and, and Arizona, but that the likelihood that we'll see a Bush versus Gore reversal of fortune is uh, nearing impossibility at this time. Remember, too, that in Bush versus Gore, one state, Florida, less than 600 votes separating the candidates and a very persuasive legal challenge. Didn't persuade me, but persuasive enough to get five justices of the Supreme Court to vote for uh, Bush uh, against Gore. I don't think we're there, even though the Supreme Court split four to four on the Pennsylvania challenge initially, and now they have a fifth vote that might support them and would support them, I think, on the Equal Protection Challenge. I think the absence of the numbers is going to make reliance on the Supreme Court <clears throat> less, than, less than certain. So uh, my prediction is that the challenges will go forward up to a point that there will be enough uh, votes to certify more than 270 for Biden and that the electors will vote for Biden and that the matter will not go to the House of Representatives where the Republicans could win. It could go there under the Constitution. It could go there. The Constitution, in fact, uses the word immediately. If one candidate doesn't get a majority of the electors appointed, whatever appointed means, whether it means voted on or actually certified. No court has ever decided that issue. But if the number of votes is less than a majority, however defined, the election goes immediately to the House of Representatives where the Republicans could easily win. But that's not going to happen. That's my prediction. And I value the accuracy of my predictions. I've been right about predicting the outcome of the impeachment, about the outcome of Supreme Court decisions regarding the ban on people from foreign countries, <clears throat> some of the immigration issues. And I think I'm going to be right here as well based on my prediction. So don't read the media that, dis that mischaracterizes my positions. They do it from wishful thinking. The hard left mischaracterizes my positions to make them seem foolish, the way CNN doctored a tape 
to make me seem like I was saying something I never said. Uh, the right and the Trump supporters misstate my position because they wish my position were <clears throat> that Trump's going to win this election and that the Supreme Court is going to turn it down. It's so important, particularly when we live in so divided a country where you can't rely on the media, that you can rely on experts. Uh, and I am an expert on this issue. I've been teaching these things for 50 years at a pretty good law school. And I'm objective and neutral. I'm myself liberal Democrat, but <clears throat> I don't buy into the liberal Democrat one-sidedness in which everything is seen through their perspective. I strongly believe in the shoe on the other foot test, and I'm going to always give you my honest analysis of the election. Let's turn to one more issue that's uh, making news today. You know that I have been railing against uh, the Reverend uh, Warnock, who is running for the Senate in Pennsylvania, and his victory, along with John Ossoff's, could turn the House over to the uh, the Senate over to the Democrats, which as a liberal Democrat, I would uh, uh, be be supportive of. But I can't support uh, the Reverend Warnick's statements that he made in the past about Israel, about uh, Israel shooting unarmed Palestinian children like birds of prey, like the, 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 the security barrier which prevented many Acts of terrorism is like the Berlin Wall. Failing to understand the Berlin Wall was designed to keep good people out of West Berlin, whereas the security barrier is designed to keep terrorists out of Tel Aviv. Uh, a terrible, terrible statement that he signed on to. Terrible statement that he made in his sermon. But now it's gotten worse for Warnock. Now he apparently made a statement in a sermon. It was reported all over the news in a sermon uh, that he made several years ago in Georgia, which is a state which is host to many military families and many people who serve with distinction in the United States military. He says you can't serve God and the military at the same time. You can't serve God and the military at the same time. In other words, he's telling all of these families some of them Gold Star families, some of them families who have children serving today in Afghanistan and other hot spots in the world. He's telling soldiers who've come back with PTSD. He's telling soldiers who have sacrificed so much to protect the families of Georgia, to protect innocent people. He's telling them that they violated God's command. He's telling them you can't be a good Christian and a patriotic American soldier. And this has caused many veterans groups and many other groups in Georgia to say, uh-uh, too much for us. Even if we're Democrats, we cannot vote for a man who makes us choose <clears throat> between our God and our country. Um, you know, so many people believe in God and country together, not separate. He apparently believes you got to pick and choose God or country. And if you pick God, you can't serve in the military. And that's just not acceptable to Americans. So another prediction here. I'm not an expert in this, so take it for what it's worth. Warnick is going to go down in flames. He is going to lose the election. The Democrats nominated the wrong candidate. They've done that before. They will do it again. But to nominate a candidate who has alienated so many veterans 
has alienated so many supporters of Israel. And remember, in Georgia, supporters of Israel aren't just the relatively small Jewish community, a substantial Jewish community, particularly in Atlanta and Savannah, but not numerically large in terms of <clears throat> proportion of voters. But he's also alienated the evangelical Christian community, which is so supportive of Israel. Not everybody in Georgia, not Jimmy Carter, who was an evangelical Christian and a bigot when it comes to Israel. Jimmy Carter loves every terrorist. He embraced Yasser Arafat, and he never met an Israeli leader that he, he liked. So as far as Jimmy Carter is concerned, his bigotry over Israel is well known. He's used the word apartheid in a book about um, Israel. But the vast majority of Georgians, uh, Jewish, Christian, um, of every faith and background support Israel. And so the Democrats picked the wrong candidate. Uh, they picked the wrong man to try to uh, beat uh, the incumbent uh, Republican senator and try to take over the Senate. I haven't heard back from Warnick. I haven't heard back from his people. They know that I have asked for him to uh, come on the show or to apologize, reject, and renounce his views on Israel. Now the veterans are going to want him to reject, renounce his views on serving in the military and serving God. I mean, what are the implications of those views? Would he say that a chaplain, a Christian chaplain, shouldn't serve in the United States Army? We've had chaplains in the United States Army since the Revolutionary War. It was Abraham Lincoln who was once asked, is God on our side? And he responded, I don't know if God's on our side, but I hope we're on God's side. Uh, you can serve in the military and be religious. People of every faith, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, atheist, have all served with distinction in the United States Army. And the suggestion that you have to choose between the military and, and, and God is just wrong. You may have to choose between God and some things the military does. That's fine. Everybody must make that choice at some time. That's why we have rules that say you can't violate uh, norms of international law, humanitarian law. Even if your commander tells you to do it, you have not only the right but the obligation not to engage in, in war crimes. If he had said that, that would be simple. That would be one thing. That's not what he said. He said you cannot serve God and the military at the same time. And that, I think, may very well cost him the election. So... We're at a, a critical point now. I think we will, in the next few days, see uh, an acknowledgement that the uh, election is probably over at this point and that I think the Trump administration will have to face the inevitable conclusion that they lost this election. They may still say it was stolen from them. That's their right. They may still refuse to concede. That's their right. Is it the right thing or the wrong thing to do? I leave to the viewers, but I don't see the route to electoral victory for the Trump team at this point in time. Many of you wish there were such a route, but you can't turn your wishes into reality. Reality is determined by the actual votes, the recounts, the court decisions. As I said from the beginning, it would require a perfect storm. You'd need judicial decisions. You'd need the vote counts to change. You'd need secretaries of state, governors, and legislatures to provide uh, certification of uh, different slates of electors than those 
that seem to have been elected. I do not think that's going to happen. But if you think differently, I want to hear your views. I'm here telling you what I think. I'm telling you as somebody who studied the Constitution and studied the law for now probably 60 years, what my opinion is, but hey, we can all be wrong. And so I want to hear from you on The Der Show. I want you to call me and tell me why you think I'm wrong and where you think my mistake lies and whether I'm wrong as a matter of law, as a matter of fact, as a matter of morality. So please call into The Der Show. Now for my favorite part of the show, The Der Show. You are the wits. You are the callers. You are the the viewers, you are the listeners, please continue to call in. We're getting great, great calls. The call-in number is 216-710-0050. For those of you who prefer zeros, the number is 216-710-0050. Make calls to The Durst Show, and I will try my best to answer all of your calls. Let's now turn to our first caller. Our first caller is from California, Joseph. Alan, uh, what do you think about uh, the aftermath? If by some reason uh, Trump was able to overturn uh, the election, would America still hold together after that? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Trump guy, but I kind of like uh, want him to lose this because I can't see the way forward on this, you know. And how do consequences affect the legality of the thing? In other words, would the ju- could the judges see, okay, you got a point, but we really don't want to cause this much chaos? You make a very, very good point. I would not want to predict, um, certainly I would not want to have any uh, influence uh, on in any way um, encouraging or predicting violent responses regardless of what happens. We are a a peaceful people. We had one civil war in our history and a few little civil war lits early in our history, but mostly we're people who accept the results of elections I hope we will continue to do so regardless of what the courts do, regardless of what the outcome of this election is. I think we ought to move forward uh, peacefully and uh, in an accepting way. Our next call is from Maria. Well, it's been horrible since Chavez. We know that they have rigged elections in Venezuela for 20 years. It's been, you know... uh, my family starts suffering, and everyone in Venezuela knows that Maduro doesn't win the elections, but they can't do anything about it. So it would be nice uh, that something happened here, because Trump is the only hope that we all have. Another example of kind of wishful thinking. We know you want Trump to win, but that uh, doesn't uh, change the reality on the ground. We also know there are corrupt elections all over the world, uh, in many parts of the world, in parts of South and Central America, in parts of Europe, in parts of Asia. We know that you can't trust elections in Iran. You can't trust elections in Russia, in Belarus. Uh, in so many other places. Uh, Hopefully we'll never get to a point where the American public doesn't trust the outcome of elections in America. Look, over 70 million people voted for President Trump. I do not believe that all 70 million of those people believe the election was stolen or was corrupted. I think a lot of those people voted, voted for the candidate of their choice, 
and are willing to accept the outcome of the election because they know that next time it may go the other way. So I think it's incumbent on all Americans and all American thought leaders to keep an open mind on everything, allow everybody to express their views, but in the end, accept the outcome of elections and uh, um, make sure that elections remain clean and viable and open. And the most important thing we have in America is our freedom of speech, our freedom to express our views, even about hotly contested elections. Our next call is from Las Vegas. Uh, Justin? It is sometimes said that a certain Supreme Court judge was the deciding vote in a case, like say a case is four to five. Uh, so the question I have is how is it that people come to choose that one of the judges on the whole court is the deciding uh, voice in a particular case? Thank you. That's a great question. You're absolutely right. We often hear, oh, so-and-so, Justice Roberts was the deciding vote, or Justice Alito, or Justice Breyer was the deciding vote. We don't really know uh, for sure. Um, even in Bush versus Gore, we don't know for sure uh, who the actual deciding uh, vote was cast by. Generally, you can get a pretty good idea by looking at the previous voting record of the justices. For example, in uh, some of the gay rights cases, it was very clear that uh, uh, who the deciding vote was, Justice Kennedy, who generally very often voted with the conservative side, voted with the liberal side on, on, on that issue. Justice Roberts, who often votes with the conservative side, uh, voted with the liberal side on the Affordable Care Act. So in those cases, I think you can be comfortable saying the deciding vote was cast by somebody who went against their usual voting pattern and voted differently on this case. But in many cases, you're absolutely right. It's pure speculation who may have been the person who cast the deciding vote. You know, it's so interesting that in the desegregation cases in 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, they waited more than a year, Chief Justice Earl Warren, before issuing the decision because he was determined to get a unanimous court. He said, you cannot desegregate America based on five to four, six to three, seven to two, even eight to one. So he waited until he had uh, a unanimous court and then he obviously wrote the decision as the chief justice ordering the desegregation of schools uh, in the South. And that was a very wise judicial move from a chief justice. So sometimes that kind of consideration also prevails among the justices. Rarer today than it was back in 1954, but great question. Our next call is from Brooklyn. Fern, what's your point? In terms of news released on Friday about the expiration of parole restrictions on Jonathan Pollard. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind telling your viewers um, about your role in the case from uh, Mr. Pollard's arrest in 1985 until the present. Um, my question to you is concerning Mr. Pollard's level of espionage, the media would have us believe that it was outrageously egregious. And I guess my question to you is if that were the case, then why would Mr. Pollard be able to uh, strike a plea deal with the prosecution? The prosecution had originally promised to give him a very light prison sentence in exchange for him 
pleading guilty, and that all turned around after after the submission of the report from former Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger to the judge in the case, who eventually handed down a life term to Mr. Pollard. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about that and the role that CIA Mole Aldridge Ames played in the case, as well as the level of resistance to Mr. Pollard's release by former um, Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger, I mean, I'm sorry, Donald Rumsfeld and C- former CIA Director George Tenet. A great question. You seem to know more about the Pollard case than uh, almost anybody else. I know a lot about it, too, because I was one of his lawyers early on in the case. And um, uh, you're right. Uh, the extent of his espionage was way exaggerated. Look, Jonathan Pollard committed a crime. There's no excuse for it. There's no justification for it. Um he felt that the United States was reneging on its promise to share intelligence information with Israel and that Israel's security was being endangered by Caspar Weinberger. Caspar Weinberger, who was born into a Jewish family but uh, turned against Israel viciously, became the most anti-Israel Secretary of Defense <clears throat> in history. Of course, he was eventually indicted himself and uh, uh, charged with perjury and had to be pardoned. By the president. So I don't believe very much that Casper Weinberger said, but Casper Weinberger turned the case around. There was a plea bargain. Jonathan Pollard agreed not to embarrass the United States, not to challenge the conviction in exchange for a promise that he would not get life imprisonment, the assumption he'd get the same sentence that others who have spied for American allies got eight years for an Egyptian, seven years for somebody who spied for Poland. That's the usual sentence for spying for an ally as distinguished from <clears throat> spying for an archenemy like Russia or, or China. Uh, the United States government then broke its deal as the result of a secret memo submitted by Casper uh, Weinberger. And the secret memo, I know, I was his lawyer, uh, did not contain completely accurate uh, information. Uh, but efforts were made to keep Pollard in prison for the rest of his life uh, Bill Clinton came awfully close to commuting the sentence, and George Tenet, the former head of the CIA, threatened to quit. Uh, finally, he was released uh, from parole, and the New York Times continued with what it has now become uh, uh, guilty of over and over again. In, in a lead story in the New York Times, they just distorted the facts about Jonathan Pollard. Uh, they said he did it for money. Totally, totally false. He did it out of a misguided love for Israel— uh, and the Israeli intelligence services forced some money onto him, a very small amount, but he didn't do it for the money. Then they implied that um, material that he gave ended up with the Soviet Union. That was alleged and never proved. And um, the allegations in the New York Times story uh, were simply not established by, by the evidence, but there have been efforts throughout history to keep him in jail over the last 35 years. I have been working very hard to get him released. I, I wasn't supporting a complete pardon or vindication, but rather a commutation to the amount of time he should have gotten under the plea bargain. I pressed President Clinton over and over again for commutation to the point where one day when I went up to him and I said, I want to talk to you. And he said, Alan, if it's about the Pollard case, I've heard enough. I said, Mr. President, I'm going to continue to talk to you about it until he's out of prison. You don't have to listen, but I'm going to continue to talk. And I did talk, and 
I think he was persuaded that it was the right thing to do, but he did not want to create a conflict with the CIA and George Tenet's threat to quit, an improper threat, because the CIA is not supposed to make policy. It's supposed to only provide intelligence information. In any event, he is now free of all parole restrictions. He can go to Israel. It shouldn't be a celebration. He shouldn't be treated as a hero. It shouldn't be seen as a political act allowing him to go to Israel. It's a purely humanitarian act. He has health problems. His wife has health problems. He served longer than any spy in the history of the United States for spying for an ally. And it's over now. So let him live in peace and uh, let him spend his last years with his wife um, in Israel. I think that's the best uh, resolution. But what a great question. Thank you for all your uh, insights into this complicated and very divisive case. I wrote a long chapter about it in my book, Chutzpah. And I've been an advocate for Pollard's release for, I would say, the last 35 years. So thanks again. Our final call today is from Virginia. Brian. Uh, I'm wondering what your opinion is on the executive order that Trump signed September the 12th, 2018, about foreign interference. Uh, the, the, article, the executive order goes uh, on to say uh, interference from... Uh, uh, propaganda, and to me, I take it as media, bad media. Uh, but I just just want to see what your take is on that. Uh, is that play a part in any of these uh, criminal cases, discussions, uh, or any kind of bearing on the election? It's a good question. The president is entitled to issue an executive order against certain kinds of interferences with our elections, computer interference, hacking, uh, other things of that kind. But look, foreign countries have a right to express their views on American elections, just like we have a right to express our views on American elections, and uh, not only on American elections, but on foreign elections as, as well. I'm entitled to express my views on who should be elected um, prime minister of Great Britain. I did express my views against uh, Jeremy Corbyn. I'm entitled to express my views on Israeli elections, on French elections, on Canadian elections. Uh, so what does it mean to influence? Um, you know, the First Amendment gives broad protections, uh, not only to American citizens speaking, but to American citizens hearing views, even views some abroad. So yeah, a uh, president has the right to issue an executive order against certain kind of interference, but not other kinds of interference as long as they are uh, limited to speech and advocacy and expressions of points of view. On balance, I think generally elections should be determined by the people in their country. They know the situation better than anybody else, and we should be skeptical of efforts uh, by foreign countries to influence our elections in any way. I doubt that foreign countries have really ever had a major influence on American elections. Americans vote their conscience. They are strong-willed people. Mostly we know what's best for us. Mostly we know who to vote for. And mostly we vote based on our own interests and the interests of our country, not on the propaganda that comes from other countries. Thank you all for a great, great calls uh, this morning. Please continue calling in. Please continue listening. And please subscribe. When you subscribe, that means you get the show every day. It helps us. It helps you. So subscribe to The Dirt Show.
An important part of the Der Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.